Hello, and welcome to In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. I'm going to be joined shortly by my co-host, Randall Jacobs. Each week, we're dissecting how the sport of gravel cycling is affecting our lives and creating opportunities. We also take a look at new products that are dropping into the world to see where product designers are getting their inspiration from. This podcast is supported in general by folks like you. You can visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride to support everything we're doing. We're also in the midst of building out a new community called The Ridership. The Ridership is the home for conversations in between each pod and frankly has grown much beyond that. We invite you to join at www.theridership.com. With that out of the way, let's jump right into this week's conversation with Randall. Randall, welcome to the show. Uh, good to be back. Our usual twice a month cadence. Yeah, we, uh, there, we, thereabouts we're, these days. We're one week delayed because I had a sp- my first two-part episode of my interview series. I ended up going a little bit longer than I traditionally have with a gentleman by the name of Gregor Van Medessa. Von Medessa, excuse me, Gregor. Uh, great conversation about his life in Namibia, finding gravel cycling, but not finding it like you and I might've found it like, oh, just go for a you know four hour, five hour ride. He really went all in. And his first event was a basically, I think a 24 hour race. And then his second one was the Munga in South Africa, which is dubbed the world's toughest race, thousand kilometers, um, four day epic bike packing race journey that he described in great detail, which is, it was a heck of a lot of fun. He's just a genuinely great person to talk to and such an adventurous spirit. I just loved it. Oh, that's awesome. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. So I'll have to add that to the, uh, the list for, for my next long ride. It's been cool. It was the first time that I'd spoken about and to an athlete in Africa. So that's, that's just really cool. It's cool to see the sport traveling around the world and in many ways to places where it's probably more naturally suited to with all the, you know, the great outdoor expanse of Africa. But also the first thing that jumps to mind too is, is thinking about, um, being prepared for riding in such places where maybe the infrastructure is not as much and you don't have, you know, you can't pop over to the local bike shop and they're going to have, you know, the part for your, the parts for your, your fancy gravel bike. Um, maybe there's no, you know, nothing nearby for a good long distance. Definitely everyday carry is, uh, is it probably expanded in such a circumstance? I would think. Totally. Now, I remember super early on when I worked for a bike company, a bike accessory company called Avaset. God, it must have been the mid '90s. And talking to one of my colleagues who was a avid bike tourer, and he was riding through California into Mexico. And I was talking to him about what his bike setup was, and he said, "Oh, I'm riding 26 inch tires," which at the time obviously was was the size for mountain bikes. But he did it for a very specific reason. He felt like he would be more likely to find a 26 inch inner tube mm. mm-hmm. in Mexico mm-hmm. than he would have been a 700 C. So that really guided his choice more than whether he thought a 700C wheel would have performed better riding down the coast and into Mexico. Yeah, people will sometimes use mechanical disc brakes for the same reason, serviceability and so on. Like you can potentially rebuild it versus a hydro system fails out somewhere, you're going you're gonna to be in a bit of a bind. Yeah, it's, it's totally fascinating to me as someone who sort of loves to be a dot watcher on some of these big grand, like, you know, the Tour Divide and some of these epic bikepacking races. 
and digging into the equipment setups and what they're doing. It's just really interesting how these little things flare up, like, you know, having um, spoke nipples and replaceable spokes on wheels versus some fancy setup that are, is completely unserviceable. Yeah, actually that, yeah, you can even have like wheels that use a single spoke length, uh, you know, front and rear drive side, non-drive side, uh, something that I paid a little bit of attention to when I, when, when we did our wheels, but like little things like that and like carrying extra spokes and, and, uh, being prepared for those, those, uh, possibilities. Um, yeah. And we were going to nerd about bikepacking gear today, but I'm actually, before we dive into that, I want to, what's been, you've shared a little bit about your bikepacking experience. What's probably been your, your most epic adventure yeah, or, or your best story from, from bikepacking and touring? My, so I've really, I mean, if I'm honest, I've really only done two proper bikepacking trips. And one was, I think the term is SO24, which is like a, an overnight, a single night overnight bike packing trip. And it's sort of designed to get your feet wet, shake out your system. And full disclosure, I've done both these trips on a BMC 29 or hardtail mountain bike. But, but I did one trip in Marin where I rode up basically to a Lima and, and, and cowboy camped in a field um, before I hit Sir Francis Drake. And it was a great experience. I had um, Revelate bags, a, a sort of a front roll bag and a, a rear bag behind the seat that I know we've talked about. And I didn't actually have any frame bags or anything, but it was totally sufficient for that length of time. Did you have and a tent? My, or? I had a tent. Oh, so you had a tent and actually, sleeping bag? That, and I take that back. I had a sleeping bag and a bivy. I did not okay. bring a tent with me. Yeah, I was going to say, the, you know, it doesn't seem like you have quite enough storage uh, with just the, the handlebar bag and the frame bag and the uh, seat bag, I should say. Yeah. And then my second trip was uh, the Oregon Timber Trail, one of the sections up there with our mutual friend Greg Kidd from Global ID and Seth Herr from Bike Index. It was actually Greg wanted to make a connection between myself and Seth, and he invited both of us on this bikepacking trip. And that was five days on the Oregon Timber Trail very much single track mountain bikey would have been amazing some of the stuff without bags but was epic with the bags huge climbs we were each carrying our own tents i added a quarter frame bag for that trip and i did have a camelback backpack kind of a bigger sized one to store any kind of additional stuff or maybe food that i picked up along the way yeah so not a ton of experience but enough to know that it is something that i would love to do a little bit more of when we live in the right place too, like the, the number of little overnight adventures that we can go on just from our back doors, uh, you and Marin, or at least Marin where you usually are and, and me being in the Santa Cruz mountains right now, pretty, pretty outstanding. Totally true. How about you? Have you done much bikepacking? Uh, I've done some, probably the most, I mean, epic to, to use that overused word, uh, adventure I had was, so I was working, um, I was working for a Chinese trading and manufacturing company in Guangzhou, uh, where I used to live. And uh, I was also, uh, that was when I was a pack fodder pro bike racer as well. And so to do my early season training, I actually flew to China and posted up in on Hainan Island, which is the big island in the South China Sea. That's about like half the size of Taiwan. And um, just went touring around there um, on a, my old racing bike. So I had a dual suspension, specialized, epic, uh, 26 setup. Um, and then I had a, one of those 
post mount racks. So it clamps on the toe peak rack. And then I had a, a top bag with little panniers that folded over the sides. And then I had a backpack um, and brought most of what I needed. I wasn't tent camping. I was much more um, like hostel camping and staying in little villages and so on. And at the time, the interior of the island was, had like really was early in its development. So there's all these like beautifully paved roads uh, and with like branches of double track going into more remote areas and not a lot of vehicles. So I had the whole interior to myself and I did that for like a month and a half. Oh, wow. Uh, where I would, you know, it was posted up in um, uh, Wujishan, which is the, the, um, the central, like the, the big town in the middle of the island. And I would be there for like two to three weeks and then fly back to Guangzhou and then go back out there and, and tour around. Uh, but I have, I have a pretty good story from that time. Yeah. Is this something you want to share? Or um, save it it, it's, something, it's something I do want to share because it, it seems appropriate. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in that, this like mountainous interior of the islands and there's this double track that I've been wanting to explore for a while. So get off the main road on this double track, go up a mountain, down the backside, up another mountain, down the backside of that. And as I'm descending the backside of the second one, um, the, you know, I'm taking a, like a, a left-hand sweeper and I'm on the outside lane and I was like, all right, I want to come into the inside and right where I crossed the grassy middle section, there was a ditch, ate my front wheel. Uh, I went lawn darting over the handlebars, landed on my forehead, um, ended up concussed with severe neck pain, like really sharp neck pain. I'm like, ugh, lying down on the ground, like wiggling fingers and toes, pinching myself, making sure everything's okay. Um, lie down, there's about like 10 minutes or so and ended up having to push my bike back up the mountain, roll down the backside very gingerly, push it back up the second mountain, roll back into the village, you know, start making arrangements to, to get myself sorted out. And, uh, you know, after several days of getting myself back to the main city, missing my flight, so having to take a bus to the other side of the island, then a ferry, and then two more buses to Guangzhou, and missing my doctor's appointment, and then getting on an international flight, I got to an ER in Boston and uh, was told that I had uh, that I was totally fine, and then <laughs> drove, and then and then drove away from the hospital and got a call and be like, "You need to come back. Don't turn your neck." <laughs> uh, oops. Uh, so I, I had broken um, a process off of C three through C five in my neck, um, but zero dislocation, and so like three weeks later, uh, I was you know back to riding. Oh but, my uh, gosh! That's uh that's probably my most interesting bike packing slash touring. Uh, story. Hopefully future ones are more interesting, but in different ways. Yeah. More epic fun than epic. Oh my gosh. How am I going to get out of this Island in China for my broken neck? It was, uh, it was incredible though. Like riding out there at that time, this is, I want to say like 2008 or so, or 2009. Um, it's, you know, early enough in the development of that area where you just see still got to really, uh, uh, immerse oneself in the local culture. And Hainan is very different from mainland China in a lot of ways, too. So that was quite an experience. Yeah, it's certainly such a beautiful way to explore the world by bike because it's so intimate when you roll into a community. And that, you know, that goes for domestic riding as well. I think you have the opportunity to roll into smaller communities that you just wouldn't set foot in otherwise, which is, uh, you know, an amazing opportunity to, to just commune with people. It's one of the sad things about COVID 
is like you you know you can't just roll in and have breakfast at the local diner because that's not really a thing right now and so you're you're much more just like in the ride experience and camping out and bringing all your own stuff but in due time 2022 maybe it's funny when you mentioned you know what my bikepacking experience was i immediately just focused on my off-road experience but i have had and maybe this is relevant to our conversation i've done maybe four different tours down the coast of California. Three mm. times I've ridden from San Francisco to LA and one time from Oregon to San Francisco. And oh, I've no tried kidding. a bunch of different setups. And so from Oregon to San Francisco, I was actually towing a Bob trailer, uh-huh. which was interesting. And I had come off of riding to LA using what you had described, kind of that tow peak off the seat post small panniers on the back setup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've also tried riding to LA with just a small backpack when I obviously I was credit card camping at that point. So it's just hitting hotels every night. Um, but it's interesting to see how the systems have evolved. And as we've referenced before on the podcast, I think we're clearly in the heyday of cycling bag accessories and ways to configure your bike for multi-day expeditions. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I I would add to that just the ability to have a single machine and then to swap, you know, anything from swapping wheels to, you know, removing bags uh, and the like to turn it in from, you know, my one bike is my endurance road bike for, you know, hammer rides back when group hammer rides were a thing all the way to my, you know, multi-day bikepacking rig. And that's like a, it takes about 10 minutes or so to convert from one to the other, uh, which is pretty great. Exactly. And I mean, that that's sort of case in point. So I'd sort of lusted after these full frame bags that I'd seen people using. And I guess I would sort of, you know, I didn't have a burning need for one. And I was always hemming and hawing as to who I wanted to get to build it. Because you can get these things completely customized to your bike. So there's ways, I know a lot of the manufacturers, you basically just take a picture of your triangle and put a ruler next to it. And from that picture alone, they can build something that fits like a glove. And that was super attractive to me, but I never pulled the trigger on it. Maybe two weeks ago or so, I was in the ridership forum and I noticed a post by uh, Dylan in the resources gear for sale channel. And lo and behold, it's a custom frame bag built for a size medium thesis that he's selling. Unfortunately, he's selling it because his bike got stolen, but he did get another bike. But not he this- stolen. He 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 had an he had an unfortunate um, uh, uh, interaction with a vehicle in which he was okay, but the bicycle was was less so, and ended up replacing it with a titanium custom bike that he had been wanting to do it for do for a while. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So I'm like. I simply cannot resist the urge and the temptation to buy this frame bag that was custom built. It was beautiful and colorful and and anybody can check it out on my Instagram feed, but it was my first full frame bag. And I had, I had sort of read about different ways in which these things are strapped to the bike, you know, whether it's straight Velcro straps, or in this case, uh, the bag is made by Rockgeist and they actually have holes for the water bottle bosses. So I'm actually attaching it to both via Velcro, also on the water water bottle bosses. And they used kind of a weaving um, 
I don't know how to describe like a shoelace sort of thing up top. Exactly. Thank you. A shoelace type thing on top, which I was curious about. I had read sort of there's advantages to that in terms of not scratching your paint and providing very even attachment points across the top tube. So, you know, with, as you said, 10 minutes of installation, I now have this bag that completely covers the front triangle of my bike. And as loud as your pink bike is, it's that much louder with the color scheme on that bag. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's (laughs) teal, purple, and yellow are the colors on that bag. And again, it was fun just to sort of embrace that as, as you know, the listener may know, I'm not afraid of color. So it was fun to just lean into that and, uh, and put that bag on. Now you're doing, um, a reservoir in there. Well, so that's the interesting thing. So obviously I've like, I've now covered up my primary bottle, uh, caged location. I thought about putting it on the fork, but I was also super curious in communicating with people in the bike packing forum on the ridership, just about how people were handling this. And I knew obviously having a bag that size would create the opportunity for me to carry a lot of water. So yes, I ended up taking what was formerly the bladder in a hip pack and putting it in the top section of that bag, primarily because my hose wasn't long enough to go any lower. And using a tip from another member in the forum, I had a little magnet that would allow me to sort of manage the hydration tube as it kind of flopped around um, my handlebar effectively. How'd that work out for you? It was good. You know, part of me, and this sort of goes back to maybe that old roadie aesthetic where I was like, this thing may perform, but it's really offending me, <laughs> my sensibilities of the clean lines, et cetera. But I have to say in the right scenario, this isn't going to be my everyday setup, but absolutely like it's totally tolerable. And, and with that magnet and the way I was managing the tube, it didn't get in the way in any practical way. So versus my normal sort of carrying capacity, which might've been 24 ounces, I was carrying 40 or 50 ounces the other day on a ride, which I'd intended to be out for four hours. So that, you know, I, I see the advantages there. Yeah. My setup, um, is, uh, I got a three liter reservoir so you can be out there properly, like in the desert on a hot day and do pretty well. And then I got a little water filtration device if need be, so I can get to a water source and not be, um, drinking, uh, brain eating mini amoebas and the like, uh, yeah, yeah I was to... running a 1.5 liter bladder, so you had double it. And I get yeah. it. Like, I think like everything, it's about having the setup that makes sense for the expedition you're on, right? There's, you don't carry three liters of water if you're hitting a town every four hours, right? That's a, perhaps overkill. But um, and I think it is an opportunity for us to nerd out kind of philosophically on like how how to set up a bike for this sort of experience and how it's changed with the advent of new and lighter gear and bag systems and the like. Uh, specifically, um, a question that I get a lot um, in um, you know from from some of our riders and from friends who are looking to set their bikes up for everything from commuting to some adventure is like racks and panniers, and racks and panniers are kind of the old way. And if you think about it, like you're adding the weight of the racks to your system, and then you have, um, you know, the panniers are at the extremes of the bike. And so not only is it affecting handling because it's far away from the center of mass of the machine, but then also, um, you know, it's, it's sticking out 
uh, horizontally, so it makes it harder to get down tighter trails, and um, you get like a, a lot more torsional sway on the bike yeah. as you're yeah, getting you, out of the saddle. You might have remembered this potentially in your experience in China. I definitely did when I toured with that hanging off the seat post rack down. Oh, I think it was terrible. <laughs> Every time I got out of the saddle. It, I just felt like the weight was swinging way out, way out from side to side. And it was pretty awful so much so that, I mean, you got the feedback immediately. Don't get out of the saddle to climb. Yeah. You really have to be super smooth and you can't, you can't really ride the bike the way that you would normally ride it. And so, you know, what, that's, what's beautiful about say, starting with a frame bag, custom frame bag, maxing out the volume and designing it in a way where it has the compartments and so on that you need uh, for what you want to bring and putting all your dense stuff there. And that way, like, you know, you're not, you're not introducing anything that's going to stress the frame in a way that is going to induce a lot of torsional load and, and things like that. Everything's very centralized. It's just heavier. Yeah. I think and if then, I'd done it, if I'd done it from the beginning now, knowing what I know now, mm-hmm. I think you're probably right that like starting with the full frame bag and then adding on additional capacity from that yeah. is from a load perspective and a performance perspective, the ideal way of going about it. Yeah, all the dense stuff in the bottom of that bag, so that water reservoir being a prime example. Uh, and then from there, you know, if you need more storage, I'm a big fan of like a, a medium sized seat bag. Don't go with the ones that extend way the hell off the back because then you get into all the swaying and things like that. But there are some bags that are in the like the four to, you know, seven or even mine's 11 liters. It's an Ortlieb um, uh, bag that I can compress down a little bit smaller. And you can just like jam, you know, a tent or a sleeping bag or something like that in there, along with some other things. Um, and then a handlebar bag, uh, being being the other part of kind of the the must have kit for bike packing. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of ways to kind of slice up the handlebar bag scenario. I've seen a lot of different things from, you know, bags that are self contained and strapped on to harnesses that are just basically using dry bags. There's mm-hmm. lots of different ways to kind of get what you need up front there. Yeah, I think it's the the Revelate Sweet Roll is kind of an example of like the harness and, and dry bag system. Um, again, I got like an Ortlieb um, dry, like it's it's a one piece, cons- like a, a seam welded construction thing. So I can, you know, have it uh, protected against the rain. I think the key thing is, you know, another conversation that's come up a lot in the, the forum is, you know, people asking like, I want more storage on my bike. What handlebar bag should I, should I get? And my response is always, get a partial frame bag <laughs> because the, the bar bags are, you know, if you're going to get a bar bag, understand that like, it's, it's not as good as putting in the frame because the mass is extended, you know, out and it's affecting the steering. But then also you have your, your cables and hoses and, and the bag itself potentially rubbing on your head tube. And so like, I don't, I really don't like the way a lot of those bags are secured. I've had, I've come up with my own securing technique to keep the bag away from the, the, uh, the head tube. Yeah. But, uh, the su- something to be the, mindful of. The sweet roll. I think that's a great point. And the sweet roll that you mentioned, I, ha- I do have that bag and they, mm. they ship with a bunch of different sort of rubber bumpers that you sort of build out to kind of get it beyond your cable system. Yeah. And I haven't used it on my gravel bike yet, so I'm, I am curious. That's sort of the next key thing I need to investigate to see if that that bag is going to be really it for me when I do bike pack on uh, my gravel bike. Well, as a public service announcement, the, I, I think the most egregious examples I see are bags, and there's a lot of them that will send a strap around the back of the head tube. So basically, every ter- time you turn your handlebars, you're essentially sawing through the paint. 
Oh, this makes no sense to me. I, I can't stand that. I mean, I, I want our bikes to look pretty. Um, I think I showed up with one and you're like, dude, you better wrap your head tube with some 3M clear protectant yep. or I'm going to kill you. Yeah, don't do that. Um, yeah, my trick is I'll secure it to the, the handlebar, um, you know, the tops. And then I have, I'll secure it to the hoods, uh, to the handlebar in front underneath the hoods. And so that way it's kind of rotationally supported and it's, you know, um, forward of the cables and everything else. And it's not flopping around. It's that flopping around and pressing everything into the, um, the head tube. That's really the problem. Not to mention just it being able to move generally making the spear, the steering not feel so secure. So if you, if you do it well, a, a bar bag is great and it's a great place to put say high volume, low density items like a sleeping bag or a tent. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm excited. I mean, I feel like I've got a wealth of options now of how to kind of configure what I need with various bags so that I'm kind of ready. I'm ready for a little bikepacking expedition. And as we've talked about before, you know, with the current state of COVID, I think those type of adventures are per- probably better to put on your calendar so that you can really nail them rather than thinking that any particular race is going to happen in the in the very near future. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it also aligns with another project that we've talked about, which is the um, the California coast, San Francisco to LA, as much dirt as possible, route building exercise that we, uh, we've had a, a little bit of chatter about over the past month or two. Yeah, I feel like I haven't given much of an update on it. And frankly, I haven't done much other than talking and observing people in the forum, talking about different sections and different areas and probing them for information. So we've had a couple of people post some routes and then just submit some debate, particularly around Big Sur in terms of where you might be getting into private property and things like that. But I probably should keep saying it on the podcast just so it really <laughs> happens in 2021. I really want us to see a great bike packing route. My ideal kind of time frame is probably nine days to complete it. And I want to acknowledge that riding on the coast is perfectly acceptable in some sections because if you're coming to California and you haven't done parts of PCH, you're really missing out because it's a beautiful road touring road. But I also know whether it's through the peninsula or through Santa Barbara, or you know, ideally we can figure this out for Big Sur, there's some amazing off-road trails that uh, we really need to be hitting. Yeah. So onto a different subject, you know, a couple bikes have been dropping lately and one of them caught my eye and it's probably more for nostalgic reasons but it's also a jumping off point for a conversation about drop bars versus flat bars. And the bike I'm talking about is FARS Twin T. It's, a, it's got a dual down tube that intersects with the top tube prior to the head tube. So it's almost got sort of a, like a little bit of an X visually prior to the head tube. And it harkened back to the SE racing quad angle of my youth that I used to lust after as a BMX bike. Have you seen pictures of this bike? Well, I'm looking at it on bikepacking.com right now. We should uh, link, maybe link to that article in the show notes. And they have one, it's like a tealish color with a highlighter yellow fork. Yeah, and for you early 90s mountain bike fans, very much Yeti racing colors. Yeah, it's super stunning. Like a very just, just aesthetically gorgeous machine that would almost get me over the fact that the, a raw, like unpainted frame in a size medium weighs 7.3 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> Could be a bit of a deal breaker for, for some. I mean, I, I've always been drawn to sort of curved 
top two frames like the retro tech built up in Sonoma County. There's just something visually beautiful and fun and playful about them. Yeah, it, it's definitely super striking. And, you know, they, it's not like they're, uh, you know, they have uh, sliding dropouts, which is a nice feature to have, but add some weights. And, you know, it's a lot of thoughtful uh, details in this. And I would imagine if you were to do it in titanium, um, you could probably get it, you know, a couple pounds lighter. Chromoly steel, I mean, this is, this is a, uh, designed to be a beast of burden and, and weight was not a, sig- a significant consideration. Yeah. I mean, the beautiful thing about building in steel, relatively inexpensive, you can play around, you can come up with concepts like this and put it out in the world for people to see. Curious, what what are the advantages of a sliding rear dropout? Uh, well, you can change the wheelbase. The further back you go, the less um, prone it is going to be to like doing a wheelie. Um, it's also going to increase the, the stability of the machine at high speeds. Uh, if you're putting, um, racks or something on there, like if you had rear racks on there, that's going to shift the weight distribution heavily over the rear axle too, and can give it some somewhat more of a propensity for the front end to lift or get light when you're climbing a steep hill. So, you know, generally that. Um, and then, you know, being able to slide it forward, uh, for a more, you know, snappy spirited feel. I'm a big fan, um, as I may have shared, um, of, you know, tighter chain stays on these types of bikes so that you can still use them as a, you know, like an endurance road bike. As soon as you get too long, the bike starts to get a little bit sluggish. Uh, so, so that's kind of the, the primary advantages there. The interesting thing beyond what I was visually drawn to about this bike is they're marketing it in that bike packing article, a case in point as something you can set up with drop bars versus flat bars. Yeah. And that that sort of conversation thread has come up in a number of different places for a number of different months. The idea of a, a flat bar mountain bike. Are all frames kind of ready for this kind of setup or where, where should riders be thinking about it? Well, there's a few considerations. So first off, like a, a mountain bike and a gravel bike are going to be tested to different standards. So... Like don't, you can make a, a flat bar gravel bike, but don't think that you're going to be able to throw a suspension fork on it, which is going to, you know, slacken the head angle and change the stresses on the bike and then go huck off of some ledge like you would a mountain bike because they're tested to different standards. Uh, so that would be part one, but the, is that, is that a very sort of practical, you need to take this to heart piece of advice. Like as someone who's designed frames, am I going to bust up my gravel frame if I'm riding it like a mountain bike as hard as a mountain bike uh if you're it's it's really the big impacts that are the the biggest issue so like the way that we ride these bikes is generally the wheels are on the ground um so it's when you're like hucking off of a ledge where you get this like really high peak load that you know a gravel specific machine won't be uh won't be designed for uh, there, there are there are a few that are that are also tested to a mountain bike standard, but don't it's not something to assume. And that often, I imagine, means like you're just gonna it's gonna be heavier. You're gonna have to beef up the bottom bracket, the down tubes, everything to withstand those impacts. So, I imagine most gravel bike designers are like, well, why go that far? Because 
we're hopefully not seeing riders huck five foot drops with these things. Yeah, it's it's just not what it's designed for. And I've never like with all everything that we've sold, and then obviously like I was at Specialized before with the Diverge, and you know they're tested the same standards. I haven't really come across people damaging these bikes while riding in that way. Usually, it's a rock gets kicked up or or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and you and I ride these quite aggressively like i'm passing people on dual suspension bikes here you know in the santa cruz mountains and when i was in the city in marin so you can ride them properly hard just don't ride it like a mountain bike that you're hacking off ledges and you know going through big rock gardens at high speeds with and so on right 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 but it's not i mean in addition to that sort of the the impact of the frame and and how you wouldn't want to ride it in that way you can't just necessarily swap a flat bar onto your drop bar bike and expect that it's going to perform the same way. Uh, correct. And, and that's, so now we get into geometry. So the, the first one was like safety really, and use case. Um, but geometry. So uh, as an example, um, I have, I have a friend, uh, my friend, Isaac, give him a, a shout out on the, on the pod here. Uh, he has a, he had a drop bar, uh, who made that frame? Some drop bar aluminum frame that um, fit him and his, you know, I think he's like 6'2". So he had a large frame, the long stem, and so on, on this, on this, uh, for this drop bar setup, fit him well. When he converted it to flat bar, um, the cockpit just gets really, really short. And furthermore, like the, generally on a flat bar setup, you probably want a little bit more stack, a little bit more upright position. Uh, but it's really the reach that is the biggest issue going from one to the other. Uh, so, you know, as an example, like if I were to say, um, do a flat bar version of uh, a thesis bike, if I ride a, a medium in drop bar, well, my flat bar would want to be a large because I want the the longer reach because I don't have the additional reach of the, the hood's and the drops with the drop bar setup. Yeah, that makes sense. That actually tracks with, I had a, a Motobacon Phantom Cross cross bike with drop bars on it back in the day that I used, did a little cross racing on, but I did a lot of commuting on it and I changed it to a flat bar. Definitely got that upright position, which was super fun for a city bike, but it was then not a bike that I was likely to go on kind of a long roadish ride on. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it works in like the same is true in reverse. I had uh, a like a somebody gave me a actually it was also Isaac gave me a, uh, a large hardtail mountain bike, and at the time I wanted to make some monster cross beast, and so I converted it to drop bar because I had the parts and you know tried to get it set up properly. But even with a really stubby stem, I was the reach was just too much. It was too long. So really, okay. I needed to start with a, a too small mountain bike. Uh, and then, and then additionally with a, a drop bar setup, you generally, despite the trend in gravel bikes towards, you know, short stems and long wheelbases, I'm still a fan of having a slightly longer stem on a drop bar bike, a 100 or so, um, so that the front end is more planted, especially for high speed road descending and the like, uh, to have weight over the axle. It's interesting. There's a really fun Facebook group, um, called drop bars and knobbies. Mm -hmm. That is just good for like seeing a lot of pictures of Franken bikes come up in your feed. And, um, I have a, as I mentioned, I had that 29 er hardtail BMC that I'd done some bike packing on. And every once in a while it dawns on me like, 
oh, maybe I should convert that into a drop bar, but this is good. I kind of had a sense that it seemed like it was unlikely to fit the same way I envisioned. It fits me like a glove now with the flat bars. And it, it just seemed unfathomable that I could chop it up and put some drop bars on there when it'd fit and feel in the same way. Yeah, I'm I'm of the mind that, um, I mean, you see new handlebars come out that are coming out um, with a lot of flair, but that you can still get a relatively normal position at the hoods. And I feel like that this is a pretty good compromise for somebody who's wanting more leverage and more of a mountain bikey feel in a bike that is, you know, designed for in terms of its geometry uh, for for drop bar in your given size. But you know, that's what's beautiful about uh, like I love seeing what people come up with when they have like they have the parts that they have. And then they do some eBay and Craigslist trading and whatever, and they create something that is a unique beast for specifically how they ride. Yeah, totally, totally. There's a guy in the East Bay, I forget his name, uh, but he is always, he's got a, a Frankenbike, drop bars, and he's a former DH guy. And I've seen that kid huck like four foot drops on his drop bar. It's a drop bar mountain bike, so it can withstand those impacts. But the videos he shares are just crazy. Yeah. Um, Probably, um, ex- you know, by sharing those videos, if he ever has a warranty claim, <laughs> if they look them up, they're uh, not going to happen. The uh, the just riding along JRA excuse we heard a lot in the bike shop, not going to work with this guy. <laughs> well, I think it's I mean, I think it's fun for me. Like, I can't totally get my head around why I would want a fl- flat bar gravel bike. I mean, I do think they're super fun for city riding. And very adept for that. I don't, I feel like it wouldn't hold the same love in my quiver that my drop bar gravel bike does. Yeah. It, I mean, everyone has their tastes. My tastes are definitely the, the drop bar bike with two wheel sets. And then if I had a second one, if I had the time to, to have a second one, dual suspension shred sled. Yeah. And like, I mean, like absolutely everything in gravel to each their own, right? We have our, we have our personal setups that we're passionate about, but they're both our personal setup and reflective of the environment that we're riding in. And by no means should anybody take away from this conversation thinking their setup is inferior because it doesn't match what we're doing, because that's absolutely not the point of the conversation. Yeah, cool. Well, it was fun to geek out for a few. I appreciate you taking a look at those bikes and sharing your thoughts. And until next time, I guess we'll see the listener in the ridership. Yeah, come join the uh, come join the conversation. Yeah, take care, man. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We look forward to getting your feedback at the ridership. And if you have a second, feel free to drop us a rating or review. It's hugely beneficial in our discoverability as a podcast. Finally, for more information on how you can support the podcast, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash the gravel ride. That's it from me, your host, Craig Dalton. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.